Right towards the beginning of President Trump's administration, our guest today was one of the most recognizable women in America. That was not her intention when she was invited to join the White House staff. But the unique and unprecedented media assault on this administration thrust her into a spotlight. And it was a harsh, hot spotlight. She was the first mother to ever serve as a White House press secretary. She also became the left's favorite punching bag. If she had worked for a Democratic president, she would be celebrated as a national hero. She would be hanging out with Oprah now. But instead, she was reviled in the press. She was kicked out of a restaurant for daring to show her face. She ended up having to have Secret Service, the first one ever to have Secret Service protection because of the violent threats against her and her children. Her story epitomizes today what's happening and the vitriol and the hatred and the desperation to stop Donald Trump. So how did she handle? How did she withstand it? How did she how did she leave with her soul after the vicious attacks? And she left with the full trust of the president of the United States and her dignity intact. Today, you're going to get to hear the real story. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, she has a new book, Speaking Out for Myself. And that's what she's doing on today's podcast. Okay, I don't know if it's I think this is every guy. And I, man, I really feel bad for women who feel like my hair is starting to thin. It's horrible. Losing your hair. It freaks guys. Women have no idea. I mean, at least women who are not having thinning hair. It freaks people out. Guys, it's like, oh, my gosh. So you got to go to the doctor for your hair loss treatment. Then he gives you the prescription. And then you got to run to the pharmacy and get that. You go broke from buying it. Or... You can try Keeps from the comfort of your lazy boy. You'll get the same doctor-recommended FDA-approved hair loss treatment, but Keeps will offer the generic versions for about half the cost. Oh, also, it's all online. You still get the doctor's visit, but you don't have to sit in a waiting room. You don't have to go see it. You just take a couple of pictures of your hair, and then the doctor reviews it, looks at all of your information, recommends the right hair loss treatment for you, and it's shipped directly to your door. So, I mean, you could do it the other way, but why? Let me get you started now with a special deal. If you go to keeps, K-E-E-P-S dot com slash save, you'll get 50% off your first order of keeps hair loss treatments. That's keeps dot com slash save keeps dot com slash save. Sarah, uh, it's a glutton for punishment. Uh, now you write a book and you go on a on a book tour and do interviews about it. Uh, and I know what it's like to be in your chair with a media that has their mind made up and they will not let you um, say what you really feel or who you really are. Um I think it's less that they won't let me say it, but they don't want to hear it. They yeah. don't care. 
to hear positive things about somebody who worked in the Trump White House. And that's one of the reasons that um, you call it a glutton for punishment. But it's one of the reasons that I want to be out there is because there have been so many books and so many uh, negative things said about the president. And I spent two and a half years, almost every single day of those two and a half years with the president. And I want people to see him the way that I did during that time and get to know Donald Trump in the way that I did. And I really try hard to make that come out in the book. So I think you did a great job on that. You do get a feeling of what it uh, felt like to be there, what it feels like, the trouble at the beginning um, and the other side of Trump that nobody um, gets to see. Um, if, if, if I were asked you to take two snapshots one that shows the complete um, lack of honesty or integrity or even interest where you witness something you're like, I can't believe I was just in that room and now I'm hearing it from these people and it's not the same. Can you give me that? And what the what kept you there? The, the one thing that would keep you going out to a lion's den to, ha- den to have them just feast on you every day. So I'll, I'll start with um, the, f- the first question. And um, sadly, I have too many examples of that. But one in particular that really stands out was actually as I was leaving the White House, um, the president had announced that I would be departing at the end of the month. And a group of reporters that I worked with on the regular um, that were always at the White House came by my office. Um, several of them I had a very good relationship with. I know that's hard to believe, but in this moment, um, they were thanking me, telling me how much they'd enjoyed working with me. Uh, they were going to miss me. One in particular, um, she had tears in her eyes and was like, I'm going to miss you. Like, you've been so great. Like, this has been such a, a good working relationship. And then the next morning, I'm sitting in my office and I see, you know, my name scroll across the bottom of the screen. So I turn the sound on the TV up and that reporter is on and they're asking it. And she's like, she had to go. It was time. No credibility left. Like she had to be out of the building. I was like, wait a minute. You literally were almost crying in my office yesterday telling me how much you were going to miss me, how great of a relationship that we had developed over the course of those two years. And now, like, it's, you know, because you're on a mainstream cable network that doesn't like the president it's like oh couldn't say anything nice about this person so that would be one of those moments where you just saw just complete hypocrisy and a total double standard mm-hmm. uh, of the media in terms of why i went out there every day it's because i love our country and i believe in standing up and being very vocal about the things i believe in and I wanted to be helpful to the president. And if I felt I could play even the smallest role in helping him continue to make our country better, then I felt an obligation to do that. I don't think people, and I haven't been at, at your level um, um, and far from it, but I have gone through the machine where they, are ju- where they just destroy you. And I don't think people understand what that feels like. Can you describe 
or, or or explain maybe what you were surprised by? I mean, you had to know you were running into trouble, but sometimes the the reality is far beyond anything you ever would expect. I, I think the thing that probably surprised me the most was the level of vitriol and also that nothing was off limits. Um, you know, everything from my appearance, my makeup, my hair, my clothes, my fitness to be a mother, my ability to bake a pie, um, everything was on the table and, you know, multiple members of the media regularly attacked me, not for my politics, but for me as a person. And so that was much different, I think, than I expected. I've always been prepared uh, to fight back for what I believe in and principles that I think are important and what's right. But to have to defend myself um, on whether or not I'm a capable parent or whether or not I should have worn red when I wore blue, um, those were things I didn't necessarily plan for and hadn't really expected. I mean, I even had a member of the mainstream media say I should be choked. A Hollywood actor suggested my kids should be kidnapped. I mean, that level of anger and hatred was something that I wasn't necessarily prepared for going in. The Red Hen incident, which you talk about in the book, um, you are the first uh, um, uh, spokesperson for the president that has ever needed uh, and issued Secret Service protection. Uh, tell me what that felt like when people surrounded you and and you realized, uh, my gosh, regular Americans are now doing this. Uh, for me, and, and, and specifically as a parent, that was the most difficult challenge is knowing that the role that I was playing um, kept me from from being able to really protect my kids. And um, that was a very scary realization and a very difficult thing to process. Um, and wanting to do everything you can to make sure, you know, we're protecting, we're raising them the, re the way that we're supposed to, um, teaching them to love America, to love freedom, to love their faith, and to have that challenged in a way um, that didn't just verbally make you have to respond, but that you had to be prepared, you know, from a physical threat. And that was something um, that was extremely difficult for me and going through that. The Red Hen incident, um, that one came kind of out of left field. I, I had gone to meet my family in Lexington, Virginia. Uh, they had already been there for a day or so before I arrived. I'd just come off a long week. I drove down from DC through rush hour, I was exhausted. I sit down at the table and within a minute or two of sitting down before I even, you know, have a chance to get settled and say hello to my family, the owner of the restaurant comes over, asks to speak with me and lets me know that she thinks I'm a horrible person. Um, I don't belong there. I don't represent their community and kicked me out of the restaurant. And I was a little taken aback, but I just said, okay. I whispered to my husband that I'd been kicked out of the restaurant. I grabbed my things and I walked out. What a lot of people don't know is the second part of that story. And I talk about that in the book is after my husband and I went back home to the place we were staying, the rest of our family went to a restaurant across the street. And the owner of the Red Hen actually followed them to that second restaurant, 
gathered a group of friends, held up makeshift signs and protested them at another restaurant until one of my family members who actually is not a Trump supporter and voted for Hillary Clinton went outside and said, look, Sarah's not even here and you're not helping our cause. like go home. And so they finally, you know, dissipated and, and, and left. But I, that level of anger to one, kick me out of a restaurant. I don't think we ever want to be the type of country that has Democrat restaurants and Republican restaurants. And to have that moment and then to continue it, to follow them even after I'd left was, you know, pretty eye opening and just showed the level of anger and hatred from the liberal mob for people that don't agree with them. So you just used a key word, um, liberal, the liberal mob. And I don't have a problem with liberals, per se. I don't have a problem with people who vote differently. I don't understand you, but uh, okay, you know, and I can live next door to somebody who vehemently disagrees with me as long as we agree on certain principles. And we used to have, you know, an American set of principles that we all agreed on. So are you do you believe that this vitriol and this anger and rage is is happening um to the average Democrat now as much as before? Um, or do you think the average person who has always considered themselves a Democrat is, is looking at their own party and saying, you guys are in bed now with crazy anti-American Marxists. Do you see any opening of that at all? I definitely think over the last couple of months, we've seen some people go, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, this is not what we signed up for. And we aren't supporting people that burn our cities to the ground, that want to, um, you know, create violent atmospheres in a lot of major cities across the country. I don't think that most Democrats, um, particularly those kind of in the middle, want to see that. The problem is the radical left has so taken over the Democrat Party that they've become beholden to this uh, sector of their party and have not had the ability to fight back. We saw that in the primaries. They moved so far to the left. Look, uh, the primary is always you're going to have your candidate move a little mm -hmm. more to the right on the Republican side, a little more to the left on the Democrat side. That's not new. But the, the distance that they moved from the center and how far to the left they went, um, I think is surprising for a lot of Democrats. At least I hope so. And I hope that they realize that that radical left is very dangerous for our country and is not the direction that we want to go. I mean, the ideas that they're pushing on that end of their party have never worked in any country. I don't know why we would think, oh, let's try it here. It's never worked <laughs> before. Socialism has always been a disaster. But you know what? I think we could do it. Let's let's give it a try. Like why that makes sense to anyone, I don't understand. Most people flee those countries and come to America because it's so much better because they want this freedom. They want to live in a country um, where they can dream anything, they can be anything and they can do anything. And they want to take that away. I don't know why we would allow a group, uh, again, that radical left to destroy what makes America so special and so unique. So my theory has 
always been, and I, I said this in 2008. No, I, sorry, I said this in 2004, I think, when they put Michael Moore in the, uh, the presidential box of the uh, Democratic Convention with Jimmy Carter. And I said, you know, liberals, you are making your bed with the devil. You, you are inviting Marxists in who believe in something radically different and you think you're going to use them as fuel and then you can put that genie back in the bottle but they will eat you and <laughs> i wondered now if it, when when you were seeing the president and seeing the behind the scenes machinery with schumer and pelosi and and the others are they afraid of the of the left now do they know that they're about to be eaten or do they just really do they really believe this stuff i you know i honestly i don't know um but i don't think they realize that they're getting played and that's i think almost as scary as letting the left control everything is letting a group of people who have no idea what's going on and have no backbone they don't have the conviction to stand up and say whoa 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 whoa! we're not going down this road we we're still americans we still hold on to a, a few just pillars of what makes our country special we're not willing to abandon that and i haven't seen the leadership in the Democrat Party do that. If anything, they've bowed to this mm -hmm. leftist side of the because that side is so much louder. You know, we have an expression in the, in the South that just because somebody eats their soup louder doesn't mean it tastes better. And I think that the Democrats have allowed the people that eat their soup much louder to control and make everybody else think it's better, and it just isn't. When you think of your future, you think of goals of where you want to be substitute dreams for goals and suddenly planning your future gets a little bigger because no one ever has small dreams dare to dream big start your bigger future with a degree from ashford university ashford university's online bachelor's and master's degree programs allow you to learn on convenient and flexible schedules at ashford uh, expert faculty will teach you real world skills from real world experience in online classes built for life's twists and turns yeah you're not going to learn you know any kind of critical theory I'm sorry, but you'll be able to go at a pace that you're comfortable and you can pursue a degree in one of Ashford's 60 plus programs like business administration, healthcare administration, even psychology with 24 seven access to your classroom, daily support, financial aid available. Ashford will give you the tools you need to go from dreaming to doing. So do that now. Start doing your bigger future starts today at Ashford University. There's no fee to apply, no standardized testing required to enroll. You just go to ashford.edu slash Beck. That's ashford.edu slash Beck. Not all programs are available in all states. As you are looking at the landscape of today, uh, you know, the, the, the left, not the Democrats, the left is gathering now and have been gathering since 2016 uh, on this um, uh, integrity in transition project. 
And they are now saying that the right and the right wing extremists and the Nazis and all of these people are going to uh, start a civil war because of the election in November. And so they are now planning on what they have to do to counter um, to be able to fight for the republic. I see what's happening now and how the media is covering for Black Lives Matter and letting people get away with things that you, you, you arrest people for. Um, how, how plausible do you think it is that the election uh, and the voting system, you know, the, the mail-in vote is done intentionally to cause more chaos and more strife? I'm, I'm hopeful that that's not the case. Um, obviously, I'm a supporter of the president, so I'm very hopeful hopeful that he wins outright and it's clear and it's decisive and we don't have a long, drawn-out process. Um, I, I think that could be very detrimental, very dangerous for our country and very divisive. Um, so I'm hopeful that whatever the outcome is, that it's very clear, that it's very decisive, and obviously I hope it favors the president. You know, I'm sure you know, I said this to the president. I said, you know, that during your election and he just stopped me, he says, oh, no, I'm very well aware. <laughs> I'm very well aware where you stood, Glenn. Um, um, but I did. I missed several things um, in him. And honestly, I saw a New York liberal um, and I thought he's never going to he's never going to do any of these things. He's kept his promise but the one thing I worried about and I, I warned about it um, in, you know, in the election of 2016, in the last year, there's going to be some event that is going to crush our economy and cause all kinds of strife. And I fear this guy will be a guy who will out FDR, FDR, and he will grab control because that's in his root and I had nothing to nothing to prove that other than he was a New York kind of guy. He's been the exact opposite of that. And yet they call him a dictator. They say that he's going to he won't he won't leave the office if if he uh, loses. Is there anything that you have seen that shows anything like that? What I saw day in and day out from the president is somebody who loves this country and who didn't need to be president. Um, he'd already been a celebrity. He had already been very successful in business. He'd made a lot of money. Um, he'd written bestsellers. He'd kind of already hit the peak in a lot of areas and he didn't need to be president. But I think our country needed him at this moment. They needed somebody to shake things up, to be the disruptor that he's been. Um, I I think a lot of people were like you and they were skeptical early on about Donald Trump, but he's governed more conservative than anybody in my lifetime. I mean, he has been very good for the pro-life community. He has been great for religious freedom. Um, but more than that, and not just for conservatives, he has done things that impact every demographic of Americans mm -hmm. that make their life better. Um, you know, he's regularly attacked uh, for not 
you know, I guess a lot of people want to paint him as somebody different that hasn't been good for the black community. When in reality, he's done more for the black community in America in four years than Joe Biden's done in 40 years in government. The president fought for and secured uh, and passed legislation for criminal justice reform. He got HBCU historic funding and made it permanent created opportunity zones, which have been uh, significant, made a significant impact in a lot of minority communities across the country. Um, And let's not forget the economy. And it wasn't just black Americans that did better under Donald Trump's economy. Hispanic Americans, uh, Asian Americans, all had the lowest unemployment in history prior to the coronavirus. And so I think if you look at the policies and you look at the substance of what this president has done, he's made America better for everybody. I don't, you know, I was, um, I was really concerned. And I think a lot of Americans uh, were, and maybe some still are about his use of Twitter. Um, And, but I have come to a place to realize it is his fearlessness and his um, his wrecking ball uh, that he just puts out there every day. And he doesn't care that is actually exposed. Uh, you know, it's like impeachment. He they go after him for impeachment and he's 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 such a wrecking ball. But all of a sudden the wall comes down. You're like, holy cow, look what's behind the wall. And, you know, I wonder if he's not at times genius, lucky, or I I don't know. I mean, do do you ever get the feeling that he when he swings something towards a wall and it comes down that he knew what was on the other? I know he'd tell you he did. But do you think (laughs) I I think I think he hopes that it's there. Um, And, you know, one of the things I loved about the president and watching him in a negotiation is we would go in and I think he would have a certain set of things he was hoping to get. And everybody had kind of agreed. But the president always had a whole nother set of stuff he wanted. And he wasn't just happy with asking for a good deal. He wanted the best deal. So he would go in. The team would sit there and have this kind of agreed upon list. And then he'd go ahead and lean into the other 10 things. And everybody's like, wait a minute. And he's like, well, let's not just waste time. He's like, I don't want to leave until I get it all. And, you know, he would push harder and more aggressive than anybody else I'd ever seen. And he wasn't going to take no for an answer. And I think the only reason he was able to get things like the USMCA deal done um, and pass historic tax cuts at the levels that he did was because he said, I won't accept anything less. And I think because he has that kind of wrecking ball mentality, people didn't want to go against him and eventually gave in and said, you know what, maybe he's right. Let's do this. Let's give it a try. And it's worked well for him. So I um, I had a conversation with him um, relatively recently and uh, Uh, It was before COVID, and we were talking about China. And I said, I am hoping, Mr. President, that, you know, we disagree on trade, but I am hoping that you are using your Tiffany's strategy. Uh, And he said, Tiffany's strategy? And I said, "Uh uh-huh, the way you built Trump Tower. And he just laughed, and he said, good for you for knowing that. 
And <laughs> I think it's one of the things that people don't understand. He, it, part of his, uh, his uh, way, his method is to be the guy with the twitchy eye. He's not, he's not crazy, but you're not sure he won't do something crazy. You know what I mean? And that's the way he's always just opened things and changed the paradigm. So can you, can you talk to a little bit about that? Because people, I think there are some people that think he's just, you know, shooting from the hip. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's not well read. He's just going in and vomiting out words where I think he is actually much more strategic. I, I think you're definitely right. Um, and he does have that sense. If I, if everybody knows what you're going to do and you say, if you don't do this, this is what I'm going to do. Well, then you've, you've given your entire playbook to the other side. Right. And the president never wants anybody to know what his playbook looks like. It was one of the things he talked about that frustrated him so much with Obama is he would tell our yeah. adversaries, you know, exactly when we were going to withdraw or here's what we're going to do next. And he's like, why would you ever tell the enemy what your plan is? And he said, we have to have a level of unpredictability so they don't know what our next move is. So we have the element of surprise and we get more of what we're working towards. And I, I think that's how, I think you're exactly right. There was a strategy behind a lot of those moments that most people thought, oh my gosh, he's crazy. Like, I can't believe he's doing that. But really there was a very clear method to the madness and he had a, a, a solid, clear goal in mind and he was going to take steps to make sure he got there. When you went with him, you talk about it in the book, uh, to meet Kim Jong-il, right? Uh, Un. Is it Un or Il? I can't remember. One's a son, one's a father. But um, uh, you, I mean, that was, that had to be a surreal moment. And here's the president saying all he's saying i'm going to you know he'll burn in the fires of the fury of the you know nuclear missiles and the next moment he's like he's a great guy we talked basketball i mean it, it was insane um tell me what it was like to be there and what you saw that we didn't see you know, it was, like you said, I think surreal is probably one of the best words you could use to describe it because there's nothing else like walking into that room um, and, and first watching that moment unfold between the two leaders walking across that carpet mm -hmm. and shaking hands for the very first time. Very historic moment um, and to witness that firsthand and then later sit at the table um, across from Kim Jong-un was uh, startling in some way but also very surreal. Uh, one of the things that I thought the president was masterful at, both in that meeting as well as, you know, watching him over the course of that two and a half year time frame, was his ability to connect with somebody, talk about things that they were interested in, but then still manage to cover NBA basketball and mm -hmm. make a sharp right turn and start talking about denuclearization. Not a lot of people can fit those two topics into the same one hour conversation like like Donald Trump can do. And he did it seamlessly and flawlessly to be able to engage them at a level that they wanted to talk about things, um, but then still accomplish his goals and lay out what he expected. So what did we, 
What did we get from that in the end? What, what will be the legacy there? Well, I think the the first couple of things um, were the buildup from before that meeting. Certainly, uh, getting our hostages back from North Korea was certainly, mm-hmm. I think, a very positive thing. Getting the remains of U.S. soldiers back and giving those families closure, stopping and halting testing uh, during that time frame. But even just the open dialogue to start a conversation, um, it's not lost on anybody the challenge that is presented of taking nuclear weapons away from Kim Jong-un or anybody else. Um, that is going to be difficult no matter what nation you're trying to accomplish that with, um, and particularly a place like North Korea. And the president went into that clear-eyed and very well aware that that was an uphill battle. But it was one worth going down that road. And I feel like he's made progress. Does that mean it'll happen in his presidency? I don't know, but he's definitely making steps in the right direction. We were at an all-time high uh, level of tension between the United States and North Korea. That has dropped down, and now there's at least some dialogue. There's also the sanctions, the toughest ever sanctions that have ever been on North Korea are still in place. And I think that that has been a key uh, component of the president's strategy with North Korea is not lifting those sanctions while the conversations were ongoing. Now, let me just tell you this. You don't get a body like this without working really hard. And uh, boy, I've worked I've worked hard. The lifting of just tubs of ice cream. Unbelievable. Um my wife has been telling me, you got to please just stop. Just stop. Yeah, well, uh, she wanted me to eat these protein bars and all protein bars taste like sawdust. At least that's what I told her. Then she was gone and I tried a uh, protein bar that she was eating and she told me they were really, really good. They're built bars and they were really, really good. So now I eat the ice cream and the built bars. Anyway, they're low carb, they're high protein, low calorie. They are so good. This is a client that I went and approached them and said, you have to let me advertise. Please let me advertise. They blew my mind. Real chocolate, real taste, and they're good for you. Are you kidding me? It's a candy bar, 130 calories. That's not a candy bar. It's a built bar. It's a protein bar. They just improved their already delicious recipe. They've added six new flavors like caramel brownie. I mean, it's all really, really good. Just go to Built Bar. You'll see the promo code at the bottom of the screen. Built Bar. Use the promo code Beck. You're going to save 10 bucks off your first order. Try it. You will love it. BuiltBar.com. Promo code Beck. Let me go to the Middle East. My entire life, everyone I knew said, why are we in bed with people? Why don't we just say that's the capital in Jerusalem and let the chips fall where they may? And State Department and all the experts always said, no, no, it'll be the biggest war ever. I don't know a lot of people that thought that that would happen that way. Donald Trump was the first one to just go, screw it. I'm not going your way. Is 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 this the reason they hate him so much because he's disrupting this this deep state or this this state that just thinks they know better than everybody else i i think it's definitely has to be one of the big reasons and it wasn't just 
the embassy. It was the the Iran deal. It was um, the Paris Climate Agreement. Mm-hmm. These were all things that people said, if, if you do this, essentially the world will come to an end. And the president said, I don't believe you. And he did it. And look, we're all still here. The world didn't end. And he was right to push forward on things that so many other people had spoken out against but been afraid to do. I mean, every president before him said they would move the embassy. And then when the moment came, they never did it. And this was a president who said, you know what? We said we were going to do it. We're going to do it. And they couldn't handle that he actually followed through on something he said he was going to do and disrupted the order of how they felt things should happen. Um, And certainly, I think that's one of the reasons that the American people love Donald Trump. And it's one of the reasons the D.C. swamp hates him. So I don't know if you saw the news. I think it came out this week um, about uh, Vindman, that Vindman turns out to be the whistleblower. And uh, the whistleblower was not really a whistleblower. The whistleblower got all of the information from Vindman uh, because it couldn't come from Vindman. And the Democratic, uh, the, the Democratic um, uh, side knew about it. Um, that's why Peter Schiff was saying all of a sudden, no, no, you can't know who you is. First, you can absolutely interview him. We're going to bring him to the table. Then, no, no one can know his name because... It would have gone back to Vinman and Vinman. His problem was he didn't like the way the president wanted to proceed in Ukraine. Can you tell me um, how how deep does this infection go? How many Vindmans are there? How uh, are all departments? in our government like this, that there a lot of them are just on autopilot and we'll just do what we want anyway and we'll outlast you? I, I don't know how deep it goes, but I know that it's definitely all over government. And one of the things um, that I saw, and certainly with some of the senior officials, is they would come into the administration with their own agenda, and they forgot somewhere along the way that <laughs> nobody voted for them. Uh, yeah. Their name never appeared anywhere on the ballot, and they came with a plan um, and thought that they could just get Donald Trump to do what they wanted. I don't know where they had been in their <laughs> lifetime. Uh, to think that they could get Donald Trump to do what they wanted, but it didn't work. And when it didn't, they would get very angry and lash out. Um, And again, it's one of the reasons the president has such a loyal, enthusiastic base of support is because he has pushed back on all of kind of the D.C. norms. And, um, you know, I think he fought back against those people. He was willing to tell them no and they didn't like not getting to control the agenda. One of the things um, I think that happens to a lot of people in Washington, they get so drunk on power and so consumed with the idea that they should be the president. They almost convince themselves that they are. And it's their decision to make, their agenda to drive. And when Donald Trump didn't fall in line, they didn't like it at all. The image that you get if you just watch the press is that Donald Trump is isolated. Um, he's got nobody in the White House he can trust. Um, he, everybody in the White House is trying secretly to 
you know, keep him to look stable and, and try to have him, you know, not destroy the country. Um, and then that is somewhat helped by the number of leaks early on. What's the reality of the White House? There's certainly uh, some bad actors that are in the White House, but there are also a lot of people that I met that I got the privilege of serving alongside that love our country, support our president and want to see both him and America be successful. And um, I'm thankful that they're there and that the president has a good group of people. Every White House has had leaks, certainly. Um, This one has probably had more than others. And um, I think some of that too, and the president has talked about this before, and I've heard him tell the story about how he'd only been to Washington a handful of times before his actual inauguration. He really hadn't spent a lot of time in DC um, and he didn't know a lot of the players. And, um, you know, he had been, met with a lot of them, but he didn't really know uh, some of the movers and shakers in previous administrations in the way that he does now. And he said, you know, I show up and one of the first nights I ever spend in Washington, D.C. is at the White House. And so some of that was learning who those people were and building a really good team around him. I think he's got some great people in his cabinet uh, that have done just a tremendous job. Uh, Bill Barr, Mike Pompeo, uh, to name a few that have really been spectacular in their role. Stephen Mnuchin, uh, Larry Kudlow in the NEC office. And then he's got a Uh circle there in the White House that are really a great team and people that are very loyal both to the president and to the country. So when the impeachment was going on, um, we started doing our homework and I wanted I told my staff, find out the truth. If the president is doing something, then we expose it. If he's not, we expose that. What is the truth? And we did <clears throat> months of research and um, it's very clear what happened there. And um, I know you had uh, you were investigated uh, for the report for the Mueller report. Um, you just mentioned uh, Bob Barr. I put a lot of hope into Bob Barr, but the, I mean, are we going to see real change and a restoration of some credibility? Will people go to jail for the things that were happening? I, I certainly hope so. Um, I think that the level of corruption that went on, particularly, and I can speak more more personally about the Russia witch hunt because I was there during that process and during that time, and the level of corruption and the links to which people went to to try to take the president down are unprecedented. And um, you know, I think Bill Barr has done a great job of coming in and really moving that forward. Um, I'm not sure if he hadn't come in, if we wouldn't still be in the middle of the Mueller investigation. He helped bring that to a conclusion. Mm -hmm. He helped get that information out and a summary very quickly, fully exonerating and vindicating the president from that absurd two-year waste of taxpayer time and resources to bring us to where we are now. And um, again, I remain hopeful that we see Um, the people that were responsible and people who truly have played a role in the corruption held uh, held accountable at some point. I'm concerned um, again with the um, 
with, with where we are as a country and the media and, and everything else. Um, and I have been watching for the tools of revolution for a long time, since 2006. I started really researching revolution and and uh, coups and everything else. Um, and they have captured everything now that is needed except the military. But if you notice, they are now trying to separate the military from the president. They're trying to, uh, they, I mean, you were there in France. The latest story is that, you know, he called fallen soldiers losers, etc., etc. They were all anonymous sources. You were there. Tell me what happened. Well, not only was I there and I've spoken out on the record, but I think 11 other people who were also uh, on that trip have come out on the record and talked about Inclu not just that day, but their, but their overall experience right. with the president. I think the people who are making this outrageous charge are such cowards for doing so in an anonymous way. If you really believe this and believed it was wrong, one, why did it take you so long? And two, um, put your name on it the way the rest of us have. I was there that day. I was part of the discussion about the president's movements and the logistics. Um, and he didn't say those things. But not only was I there that day, Glenn, I spent two and a half years traveling all over the world with the president, watching him interact with men and women of our armed forces almost every single day during that two and a half year period. I watched him uh, sit in the Oval Office and make condolence calls to families. I watched the emotional toll that took on the president. In those moments, I saw his heart. I saw a person who doesn't normally show vulnerability show some. I watched when we traveled and we were going to do a fuel stop at two o'clock in the morning and we were coming back from Asia and and we were going to be on the ground, I think, about two hours. And the president said, oh, well, let's get off the plane and say hi to the troops. And they said, well, Mr. President, it'll be two o'clock in the morning because it's a military base. You mean to tell me nobody's working at two o'clock in the morning? Mm. He said, if we get off, we see 10 people, we see 10 people. Um, but we'll see who who's on duty. We'll say hello. We'll thank them. Um, but we're not landing at a military base and not saying hi to the troops. When we landed at that military base, there were hundreds, if not thousands of troops that had come out in the freezing cold in a hangar at two o'clock in the morning to see the president. And we ended up staying for a long time. He went all the way up and down the rope line, shaking hands, taking pictures, making remarks before we got back on the plane and headed home. This is a person who loves America and loves the people who allow the rest of us to live in America free and uh, have prosperity. And I got to see that a lot. And I think it is shameful that people are trying to distort who he is and what he has done, particularly um, when it comes to the, the men and women of our military. The one thing that I think I had nailed in 2016 was, and it was something that I could not put into place really until recently. Um, and I said, his children love him. I mean, love him. And you would have to believe that his children, all of his children are also monsters. If he's a monster, 
Um, and that just didn't ever fit right with me because they're di- diverse and every family has, you know, a wayward kid or whatever. But to have all of them be monsters and covering for a monster would be insane to think. And then I watched this convention, which I thought was remarkable. And I saw the private side of Donald Trump. And is it safe to say that they're they're in some ways uh, not a you know, broken personality, but that there are two Donald Trumps, the one that is the mover, the shaker, the titan, the president that is and the performer and the other one that really only his family sees the quiet Donald Trump that you never see. Is that do you think that's accurate or not? I don't know if there's a, a quiet Donald Trump, so I don't know if I would use that term, but I, I do think that there is um, a side of the president, the generous and the compassionate and the kind Donald Trump that a lot of people don't see. Um, one of the stories I write about in the book, and one that, frankly, I was even surprised by, um, it, there was one day I came into uh, the back dining room of the Oval Office, the president sitting there, and he asked me, have you ever heard of this music group called Point of Grace? I was like, actually, yes, I have. Um, I'm like, they performed at my wedding, but where did you hear about them? (laughs) And he's like, I saw them on TV. I thought they had the most beautiful voices, just incredible. He said, such great spirit, such a great message. They're a Christian uh, group of women uh, that went to the same small college in Arkansas that I went to, very small world here, that he saw this. And out of nowhere, he randomly, he sent them a check like $5,000 just because he wanted them to get their message to more people because he liked it, because he saw it. Um, And it was little moments like that, that I think people would be surprised by um, and not expect from Donald Trump. And there were, I think were a lot of moments like that, but I think you are exactly right that his kids, they they didn't just start working for him or start being around him when he became president. They all worked in the Trump organization. They all have, uh, you know, really celebrated and championed the work that he's done. And now they've been willing to take all the hits, um, a huge sacrifice personally. Um, they are probably as brutally attacked as anybody oh, yeah. ever has been. <sighs> And they keep doing it and they keep fighting and they keep standing up and standing with him. And I think that says a lot about him and a lot about each of them as well. After the um, after the RNC, uh, I actually wrote a letter um, to the children um, and apologize. Even though I never said anything about them, I I've. I was so moved by um, how wrong I had been that I realized I didn't even realize I didn't even think I know what my children go through. You know what your children go through when you're attacked. And it was just it was a little overwhelming um, on uh, on just the the cruelty that can uh, that that everybody seems to be going through and they are at the top of that heap. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, so what's next for you? 
when when are you going to sit in your father's old chair uh, well, we'll see. Right now, I want to help the president get reelected in 2020. Um, I'd like to see us keep the Senate. I'd love to see Republicans take the House and never have to say Speaker Pelosi again. So right now, I'm focused on 2020. Um, the Arkansas governor's race is in 2022, and our governor, Asa Hutchinson, is termed out. And I'll make a decision at some point after we get through this cycle uh, whether or not I'll make a run for that. You, you um uh, tell an interesting story about the Bill Clinton machine and your dad uh, in the book. Can you can you tell that story? Yeah. So my dad, um, the very first time he ran for office was in 1992. I was 10 years old at the time, and he lost uh, the U.S. Senate race that year. But because that same year, Bill Clinton was on the ballot, not the best year to run as a Republican in the home state of the guy who wins the presidency. But because Bill Clinton won, the lieutenant governor became governor and they held a special election for the lieutenant governor. They came to my dad, the party apparatus and said, look, we don't know if you have much of a shot, but we think if we do, you're the best one we've got. So will you run? He said, well, with an endorsement like that, why not? <laughs> so he launches, he launches into the race and he surprises everybody and he wins the governor's race in 93, upsetting the Democrat machine campaign, the Clinton campaign uh, or Clinton White House had raised money for his opponent directly from Washington. Mm. Uh, they held back nothing to try to defeat him and he still managed to win. And they were so excited that he won that to welcome him to the Capitol, they zeroed out the entire budget and nailed his door shut so that he couldn't physically occupy the office. Um, it took about 59 days before even some of the Democrats said, guys, this is getting absurd. Like, let the man in the door. So finally, they opened the office, but he had to raise private funds to, to buy furniture, to get stationary for a government office that he had been elected to because the Democrat Clinton machine in Arkansas um, was not happy to see him arrive. And it's only gotten worse, hasn't it? <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. Do, you, do, you, do you miss it at all? I definitely miss the people um, and I miss being in this, the center of the action and getting to work with the team that I really loved and getting to work with the president who I, I came to get very close to. And so I miss that part of it. There are certainly days where I look and I'm like, I'm glad that I'm not there today. Yeah. Um, and I also get to spend a lot of time with my kids, and I'm very thankful for that time. I get to drop them off and pick them up from school a lot more often than I ever did at the White House. Um, and that's a really nice transition and a really nice time to get to share with my family. Well, I have to um, tell you, Sarah, uh, you know, there are people that have gone to battle and lost a leg and lost arms and lost their lives uh, in service. Uh, you went in and did battle, and while you didn't lose anything physically, and I don't think you lost anything spiritually either, um, I thank you for your service, sincerely. It, it was grotesque uh, what was done to you, absolutely grotesque, and uh, you don't seem any worse for the wear. 
Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you letting me be on and us getting to have a a good conversation today. It's nice to actually talk to a friendly face every once in a while. (laughs) I I know. I know. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the name of the book is Speaking for Myself, and it is available uh, everywhere, um, wherever you buy your books. Thank you so much, Sarah. God bless. You bet. Thank you so much. You bet. Just a reminder, I'd love you to rate and subscribe to the podcast and pass this on to a friend so it can be discovered by other people. 